Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Thursday, March 30th, 2023. It's been 3,319 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27th, 2014, and now 400 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Commands North, South, and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Some quick housekeeping. We are focusing on regional updates and critical news through April 26, 2023, as we launch our second podcast, Gen All which is not specific to the Russia-Ukraine war. But let's go ahead and start this podcast with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we assess the Russian winter offensive has culminated. Second, we assess that the Russian Federation armed forces are combat ineffective and, beyond Bakhmut, are only capable of point and localized attacks. Third, We assess that the Ukrainian defense of Bakhmut remains in a critical state and is fluid, with defensive lines protecting the ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line, stabilized. Fourth, we maintain that short of using chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear, that's seaburn, weapons, the Russian military will continue doing everything possible to capture Bakhmut, regardless of the cost. Fifth, We maintain that Russian forces are experiencing a theater-wide shortage of non-precision artillery munitions. Sixth, we maintain, and International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, Director General Rafael Grossi further confirmed that a nuclear accident due to the de-energization of Ukraine's electrical grid remains possible as long as the Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, continues to target Ukraine's power industry. Seventh, we maintain that the Russian MOD has degraded the political and military strength and influence of private military company, or PMC, Wagner Group, and its leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin. And finally, we maintain that the Kremlin is actively interfering with the governments of Moldova and Georgia to derail the European Union membership accession process and destabilize their current governments. One year ago yesterday, on March 29, 2022, Russia's Deputy Defense Minister Alexander Fomin announced that Russia would, quote, fundamentally scale back military operations around Kyiv and Cherniv to increase, quote, trust in the ongoing peace negotiations. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu emerged for the second time in a week, 
declaring that phase one of the operations in Ukraine was complete and the new objective was, quote, liberating Donbass. The Pentagon told reporters they saw signs of Russian troops making limited withdrawals, but assessed it was likely troop rotations. After more than a week of nuclear threats from Moscow, Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov tried to clarify the statements, saying that nuclear weapons would only be used if there was a, quote, threat of existence. Russian forces heavily shelled the areas north of Hostomel, carving a corridor of retreat. In Irpin, Ukrainian officials started discovering Russian war crimes while fighting raged on in neighboring Bucha. In Cherniev, artillery shelling stopped overnight, enabling engineers to re-establish water and power in some parts of the city and humanitarian aid to arrive. Fighting for control of Izum continued, as well as Popazna and Rubizhne. One of the weirder claims from the Kremlin reports that a Moscow biker gang had captured Rubizhne were, of course, false. Intense fighting continued in Mariupol, with Amnesty International accusing Russia of war crimes. French President Emmanuel Macron reported that Russian President Vladimir Putin had rejected a French, Turkish, and Greek plan to evacuate Mariupol civilians through an amphibious operation. In Mykolaiv, a cruise missile struck an administrative building in a daytime attack, blasting a hole through the nine-story structure, causing at least 46 casualties. A large Russian ammunition depot exploded near Bilgorod, with Russian officials claiming there is a violation of safety protocols. Let's get some regional updates, starting with Kharkiv. In the Svatova operational area, in Luhansk, but we've talked about this, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported continued positional fighting near Krochmalne, located on the Luhansk-Kharkiv administrative border. Otherwise, the Dvorichna and Kupiansk operational areas were stable. Moving on to the Donbass region in Luhansk. South of Krochmalne, the GSAFU and the Russian MOD reported Novoselivske and Stelmachivka were shelled. In the Kremina operational area, Russian mercenary millblogger Worgonzo reported that Russian forces made another attempt to advance on Makivka, which still failed and there was positional fighting between squad and platoon-sized units from Ploshanka to Chervonopopivka. Positional fighting between squad and platoon-sized units, which the Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor Roman Vlasenko reported as intense, also continued in the forested areas west of Kremina. The Russian MOD reported that Ukrainian forces in the area of Dibrova were hit by artillery. In the Lysychansk operational area, fighting continued northeast and east of Milohorivka, the one in Luhansk, with no verifiable change in the situation. There were several reports that Ukrainian forces recaptured the ridgeline northeast of the settlement and advanced further east, but no pictures or videos are available to confirm the progress. On March 19th, the self-declared leader of the so-called Luhansk People's Republic, Leonid Pasechnik, signed a decree that dissolved the regional government and transferred control to the Russian Federation. Some assessment. We don't know the decree's impact, if the Kremlin has even accepted it, or how this will impact the self-declared republic beyond the short term. 
We also don't have any insight into how this will impact existing LNR employees, officials, conscription, law enforcement, territorial guard, and Russian gowlighters. In northeast Donetsk, in the Siversk operational area, Russian forces continued attempts to move through the tree lines and open fields toward Vrednokomyanskye without success. Russian forces also continued attempts to advance west out of Berestova and along the railroad line toward Vyemka, also without success. In the Solidar operational area, the PMZ Wagner Command and Control Logistics and Troop Barracks in Paraskovievka, adjacent to the hospital, were heavily shelled by drone-directed artillery. Several armored vehicles were destroyed, the building was set on fire, and ammunition was recorded cooking off. PMZ Wagner leader Yevgeny Prigozhin has previously made several videos from the roof of the building. In the Bakhmut operational area, Prigozhin claimed that Wagner had destroyed the Ukrainian army in Bakhmut while suffering heavy losses in the process. Only a week ago, Prigozhin claimed Ukraine had gathered 200,000 troops west of Bakhmut and wrote a letter to Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu asking for help to protect his mercenaries' flanks. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov snubbed Wagner in a statement, saying, quote, Russian fighters show miracles of heroism in fierce battles near Artemovsk, Bakhmut. The Kremlin wishes them success, end quote. While this is a step up from referring to Wagner mercenaries as volunteers, the statement still didn't credit the PMC for taking on the most intense fighting since January. According to the United States Department of Defense, 6,000 Wagnerites are leading the fighting in Bakhmut, a far cry from the up to 50,000 mercenaries in Ukraine at the beginning of November 2022. Wagner released its first map update in 11 days. Our war map aligned with most of their territorial claims, but required some adjustments. North of Bakhmut, the GSAFU and Wargonzo reported that fighting near Orekhovo-Vasilivka restarted. Wagner claimed their forces had no presence in the village, countering reports from Russian mercenary mill blogger Rybar. Based on the new intelligence, we moved the gray area to the administrative borders of the settlement, but did not move the line of conflict. North of Bothanivka, fighting continued with no change in the situation, and PMC Wagner's attempts to advance on Khromova failed. Based on intelligence from the PMC, we reduced the gray zone north of Bohdanivka to the town's administrative border. The T-506 Highway G-Lock remains open, but challenging. The road will likely only be usable by tracked vehicles due to Bezdorizhia and may become impassable by Sunday due to incoming weather. In Bakhmut, fighting continued to the north, south, and east. The GSAFU reported PMC Wagner had some success in Bakhmut without specifying the direction. The report from Kyiv came out minutes before PMC Wagner released their updated map. In our assessment, the success likely referred to gains from the south that had reached the edge of the city's administrative center and were already represented in Wagner's update. Our map in the southeast favored Wagner, with the PMC reporting heavy fighting along Mariupolska Street. We have the line of conflict four blocks north, just south of the Silpo Market. Wagner also reported intense fighting along Korsunskoho Street. In alignment with our current map and contrary to claims made by Rybar, 
Ukraine is holding firm control of the Avantgarde Stadium. Wagner Group stated their next goal was to capture the city administrative building west of Miru Street, indicating that this area is still under Ukrainian control. Based on the new intelligence, we moved the line of conflict three blocks east to Miru Street. Russian troops continued their attempts to advance on Ivanivska and reach where the MiG-17 statue used to be located without success, with fighting occurring 200 meters to the east. On March 29th, a Ukrainian Varta infantry mobility vehicle was attacked by Russian aviation. The vehicle suffered moderate damage but reached its destination with the sniper squad and vehicle operators reportedly unharmed, according to Ukrainian officials. Based on the photos released by the GSAFU, it's likely that unharmed was an optimistic statement. As with most of the photos and videos we reference here on the podcast, we do link to them in our full situation report on Patreon. In the Kostyantinivka operational direction, Russian forces attempted to cross the siversky donetsk donbass canal toward Pretechine and west of Ozaryanivka to expand and strengthen their positions on the West Bank. They were not successful. Organzo reported that Ukrainian artillery units shelled Russian positions in Ozaryanivka. In southwest Donetsk, significant fighting continued in the northern sector of the Avdiivka operational area, with the line of conflict remaining fluid. Russian and Ukrainian sources reported fighting east of Novokalinove with no verifiable changes in territorial control. The GSAFU reported that Russian attempts to advance into Novobakhmutivka were repulsed, while Rybar reported the 1st Army Corps made marginal gains using a tree line south of the settlement. This claim aligns with our map update from March 27th, which was done using terrain analysis. Adding fuel to our assessment that Ukraine controls at least part of Novobakhmutivka, Wargonzo reported that Ukrainian positions in the settlement were shelled. Wargonzo also reported that Ukrainian positions in Krasnokhorivka were shelled, and the GSAFU reported that a Russian attack was repulsed. Russian attacks in the direction of Stepove were unsuccessful. Rybar repeated their claim that Kamyanka is under Russian control without evidence or second-source confirmation. Russian forces continued point attacks on the edges of Avdiivka, which continue to fail and are producing heavy losses. Morale among soldiers of the 1st Army Corps, increasingly comprised of Russian Mobix and penal units, is low. Russian airstrikes continue to destroy civilian infrastructure in the city, which is being reduced to rubble. South of Ovdiivka, the 1st Army Corps continued attacks in the direction of Sieverne, continued to make no progress, and continued to suffer significant losses. Wargonzo and Drybar claimed that an attack on the eastern part of Pervomaiske was successful, with the 1st Army Corps able to advance on the M4 or E50 highway. At the same time, Ukrainian sources reported the attack failed. Due to the uncertainty and lack of visual evidence, we expanded the gray area to the west. In the Marinka operational area, the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, People's Militia Telegram Channel delivered intelligence on the state of the line of conflict. A geolocated video showed the Russian 150th shelling the frozen foods factory in the center of Marinka, east of Druzhby Avenue. 
Based on the new intelligence, we moved the line of conflict one block east. In Velika Novosilka, the non-governmental organization, or NGO, White Angels, continue civilian evacuations, transporting people who have lived for over a year in basements to safety. Shelling intensity has increased, causing even stubborn pensioners to reach an emotional breaking point. Vladimir Putin has appointed Vitaly Khotsenko as the acting governor of the Russian Omsk region after Alexander Burkov resigned from his position. Khotsenko has been the prime minister of the self-declared DNR since June 2022. Russian actor and singer Nikita Jigura visited Volnovakha wearing a Russian military uniform, but he forgot to roll his sleeves down during the PR videos. While the black sun, also known as the sun wheel, is not exclusively a Nazi symbol, having a sun wheel or spider web on your elbow is a signal of supporting Nazi ideology. Sidebar? Oh, hey, we found more Nazis in Ukraine. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Moving on to Zaporizhia. The Zaporizhia Regional Military Administration reported 62 Russian artillery strikes along the entire line of conflict using tanks, multiple launch rocket systems, and artillery. The sustained reduction in artillery fire further validates that Russian troops suffer from a theater-wide ammunition shortage. The Director General of the IAEA, Rafael Grossi, traveled to the Zaporizhia Nuclear Power Plant, or ZNPP, with three new security monitors and seven representatives from the United Nations Department of Security and Support. Grossi and IAEA staff had to cross a minefield on foot to reach the Russian convoy waiting to take them to the facility. After the visit, Grossi made a brief statement, quote, The course of my seventh visit to Ukraine, and after my second visit to the ZNPP, I am now more convinced than ever that the protection of the plant is necessary. I've been able to assess the damage sustained by this facility after the shelling on November 20, 2022, and also the problems that occurred after the repeated blackouts. Protect Zaporizhia is possible. The IAEA and I myself will continue to work to this end. End quote. Renat Karcha, an advisor to the head of Rosatom, told Russian state media that, quote, Grossi saw no offensive weapons are present at the site, end quote, while providing no visual evidence to support the claim and without any supporting statements made by the Director General, the UN, or the IAEA. Russian collaborator and occupied Zaporizhia administrator Vladimir Rogov broke OPSEC, that's operational security, and provided a battle damage assessment of the electrical substation hit by rockets fired by HIMARS in Fedorivka. The transformer farm suffered moderate damage, with Russian reports that power had been restored. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, Operational Command South, or OKS, reported there were six vessels of the Black Sea fleet on patrol, including one Kilo-class submarine capable of launching up to four caliber cruise missiles. 
The number of deployed vessels dropped to four due to severe weather moving into the region. Already, over 270 trucks were waiting to take the Kerch Strait ferry from Krasnodar. That's a two-day backup due to weather-related delays. In occupied Crimea, a large explosion occurred in an empty field near Gvardiysk. Pictures showed a large crater was left behind, and the blast was captured on multiple videos. Local officials claim the explosion was caused by a drone being shot down. However, there were no reports of active air defense in the area, and the only piece of debris shown wasn't consistent with a drone. As a follow-up to a story we reported yesterday, officials reported the car versus train crash in Dunkoy was caused by a taxi driver, resulting in the death of a single mother and her two children. In western and central Ukraine, in Kherson, Russian and Ukrainian forces fired on each other's positions across the Dnipro River. Russian forces completed 45 fire missions, firing 214 artillery rounds, mortars, rockets, and indirect tank fire, attacking the city of Kherson three times, killing one and wounding another. The systematic destruction of Bereslav continued with the Russian VKS dropping two JDAM-ER Fab 500 so-called guided glide bombs, with one striking an abandoned factory and the second landing in a field. On the Russian front, an explosion and fire erupted from a gas pipeline in the village of Pelham in the Sverdlovsk region. The glow could be seen for tens of kilometers. Russian officials claim the fire was caused by the Yamburgielets-1 pipeline depressurizing, which is a fancy way of saying there was a leak. The gas was turned off at another station, enabling firefighters to permit the remaining gas to burn off. Russian officials have determined the drone found near Moscow railroad tracks was not carrying explosives at a theoretical maximum range of 250 kilometers and was only capable of mid-altitude flight no faster than 80 kilometers per hour. They do not believe the drone was Ukrainian in origin or launched from Ukraine, and an investigation is ongoing. In Rasavandan, residents reported the sound of an explosion captured on security camera videos. Local officials said it was a sonic boom, and there were no reports of fires or air defense being activated. Russian state media agency Baza reported that the Russian Federal Security Service, or FSB, determined the FSB border security headquarters explosion in Rastavandan on March 16th was the fault of security service employees. Investigators claim that an FSB border agent found a drone and took it to the border control building. While attempting to access the memory card, the drone exploded, causing a fire that quickly spread into a warehouse. Three employees working to disassemble the drone were killed instantly in the blast, and the border security headquarters was badly damaged. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. On the same day, the Kremlin notified the United States they would no longer share information about nuclear readiness drills, missile launch tests, or other nuclear weapons development activity, The Russian Federation started drills with the Yars ICBM system. The Omsk and Novosibirsk missile units were activated and deployed the mobile ICBM launchers. The Russian MOD said the drill would involve 3,000 troops and approximately 300 pieces of equipment. 
The Turkish Air Force joined the NATO mission conducting patrol and reconnaissance flights over the Black Sea. Flight radar tracked a Turkish ATR-72-600-TMPA, loitering off the coast of Romania, executing a maritime patrol mission. United States inspectors found no signs of serious violations in the use of aid provided to Ukraine. A USAID spokesperson said, quote, To date, we do not have any serious criminal findings related to the provision of aid to Ukraine by the United States. However, this increase in the number of messages shows that our outreach work is working and that people know how and to whom to report potential misuse of USAID funds, end quote. Lloyd Austin, U.S. Secretary of Defense, said that currently Ukraine needs air defense, long-range weapons, and armored vehicles the most, but that F-16s, quote, at this stage of the war, will not help the Ukrainian war effort. Austin said it would take up to 18 months to provide the training, equipment, and capabilities to support F-16s or other fourth-generation fighter aircraft. Some assessment here. Had there not been a year of talk on this topic, and action was taken in April after Ukraine proved it could defeat a much larger enemy, mostly independent of direct military aid, Western allies would be 12 months into 18 months of preparation to provide modern fighter aircraft to Ukraine. The Ukrainian military returned an air defense system donated by one of its Western allies from Europe that reportedly didn't work and was having to be replaced, quote, again and again. Ukrainian officials did not report which system was problematic or what nation donated it. The Ukrainian officials have shared positive feedback about NASM's, SAMP-T, and IRIS-T air defense systems. Unrelated to the returned air defense hardware, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said the Patriot air defense system has yet to be deployed to Ukraine, adding that to close the skies, Ukraine would need at least 20 batteries, which may not be enough. No nation has been targeted with so many ballistic missiles since England during World War II. Speaking of not being enough, let's talk about the Russian military and mobilization. In an effort to dodge a question about when Russia's war against Ukraine will end, Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov told reporters that the, quote, hybrid war of hostile countries against the Russian Federation, end quote, will last for a while, requiring Russians to, quote, unite around Vladimir Putin, end quote. A military commissar in the Ufa region has been fined 1.8 million rubles and sentenced to six years of probation after being found guilty of a bribery scheme to keep professional and semi-professional Russian hockey and soccer players from conscription and mobilization. Pro-athletes were charged up to 170,000 rubles for a waiver, while others were told to get iPhones, smartwatches, and other electronics. His wife was also convicted due to her involvement, receiving three years probation and being required to pay a 510,000-ruble fine. Three hockey players who bought waivers were also convicted, receiving fines of up to 2 million rubles each and up to five years probation. A Russian investigative committee accused a colonel in the Russian Guard of supplying low-quality radar systems to combat drones and protect the Crimean Bridge. Russian state media agency TASS reported the 235th Garrison Military Court is deliberating on a sentence. The court wrote, quote, With the direct participation of Volkov, 
The troops of the Russian Guard received two radar systems to combat unmanned aerial vehicles, the technical characteristics of which were insufficient to successfully carry out tasks to counter modern UAVs. End quote. TASS reported a 395.5 million ruble contract was awarded after a state auction to the federal enterprise RNIIRS to supply two anti-UAV radar systems. The systems delivered didn't work, and despite knowing the equipment did not meet requirements, the unnamed colonel signed off on the equipment and released the contract for payment. In other news, the Crimean Bridge is not protected by anti-UAV radar systems, apparently due to corruption in the procurement process. But everything is going to plan. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Russian telegram channels are circulating a video showing members of the 1st Army Corps finding a wounded Ukrainian soldier in Marinka and potentially executing him just off-camera. The Russian Mobik filming the incident appears visibly disturbed as four shots are fired. The video was likely filmed in the last week based on weather conditions. While the video doesn't show or prove there is an execution, some viewers may find it disturbing. Russian state media is reporting Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, who is on assignment in Ekaterinburg, Russia, was arrested by the FSB and is accused of espionage. He is accused of trying to collect intelligence at a defense factory, violating Russia's laws on state secrets, and is facing between 10 to 20 years in a penal colony. Gershkovich is a United States citizen operating with proper press credentials in the Russian Federation. In a statement, the Wall Street Journal wrote they were, quote, deeply concerned for the safety of Mr. Gershkovich, end quote. The United States Department of State had not released a statement at the time of recording. According to the latest data from the National Information Bureau, the Ukrainian Ministry for Reintegration reported that 19,514 Ukrainian children are currently considered illegally deported. Another 4,390 children in occupied Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson are illegally separated from their parents or legal guardians. With almost 25,000 children illegally in Russian custody, fewer than 350 have been repatriated and reunited with their parents. The Supreme Court of the self-declared DNR, with Russia, Syria, and North Korea as the only sovereign states recognizing the court's authority, sentenced Dmitry Smitya, a commander of the Ukrainian Azov Battalion, to 20 years in a hard-labor penal colony, tantamount to a death sentence. The court claims that Smitya shot a civilian from the third floor of a residential building on Azovstalskaya Street on March 24, 2022, in Mariupol. The Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate, or UOCMP, which has been ordered to vacate the premises of the Kiev-Pichersk-Lavra, filed a court appeal to block the eviction. Metropolitan Pavlo, or Lebid, said the UOCMP clergy would not vacate the holy site. On Wednesday morning, hundreds of UOCMP supporters came, quote, to worship in the Pichersk Monastery, end quote. The worship service was peaceful, with no interference by Ukrainian officials. Mm-hmm. 
In geopolitical news, speaking with the Associated Press, Ukrainian President Zelensky extended an invitation for Chinese President Xi Jinping to visit Kyiv, saying, quote, We are ready to see him here. I want to speak with him, end quote. Adding that before February 24, 2022, Beijing and Kyiv were on speaking terms. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Sweden summoned Viktor Tatarintsev, the Russian ambassador to Stockholm, due to the Russian embassy's statement threatening Sweden and its ongoing efforts to join NATO. In a post, the embassy said, quote, The new members of the enemy bloc will become a legitimate target for Russian responses, including military ones, end quote, concerning Sweden joining NATO. Quick sidebar. Because Russia has done so well against Ukraine, nothing could possibly go wrong with fighting all of NATO after an Article 5 declaration from member states due to a preemptive and unprovoked Russian attack. That's a great idea. According to Politico, former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo plans to visit Ukraine on April 3rd. Politico assessed that the trip is an opportunity for the potential 2024 U.S. presidential candidate to show his support for Ukraine, in contrast to announced Republican candidate former President Donald Trump and expected candidate Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Both have indicated they would sever military support for Ukraine if elected. Some pundits claimed that DeSantis's recent 10 to 15 percent drop in polls against former President Trump was due to his public declaration of non-support for Ukraine. In our assessment, that view is a bit too narrow, with Governor DeSantis's appeal not as strong outside of the United States Bible Belt. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.